Paul now, in this fourth chapter, deals pretty intently with, intensely with uh, the concept of justification using Abraham as an example from the Old Testament. To remind you that, you know, really, the book of Romans, Paul hadn't been to Rome yet. Uh, he's writing this explanation of the gospel is what it really is. Uh, to help them understand his position, to help them with some problems. Um, justification is a real fancy word. Just, the word justification, the word righteousness, are basically the same word in the Greek. Some form, some derivative of that word. And it means to be in right standing with God. It's a legal term. And it means to be just, means to be declared right. Uh, it's not something that you've earned at all. It's not something that was proved on your behalf. It's just something that is declared and in Christ, God declares you're righteous, you're just, you're justified. Uh, and what's important is that process comes, or that justification comes, through faith. It's very, very clearly laid out in Scripture. The just person lives by faith. It, it, faith is the connecting piece uh, to being justified. Now, faith is not a work. It's not, it's not something we earn. We don't we don't gin up our own faith. We don't, we don't reach deep down in, in the resources of our life and come up with faith. Faith is very clearly stated in Scripture. It's something God gives to us. But in God giving us faith, we still have to lay hold of that. And it's just like I said last week. A gift does you no good if you don't open the gift. You didn't earn the gift. Opening it up doesn't mean you earned it. Opening up the gift is not a work. It is to receive the gift and to use it. And faith is that gift. And so a strong, a long time, ongoing battle within um, life is the idea, even within um, people who in the Old Testament times, spilling over into the time of Christ, even today with Christians, is the idea that there is something we do to contribute to our salvation. You, 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 really, you just have to get the idea that we somehow contribute to our salvation. You have to remove that from your mind. Because it's never taught. It's just never taught in Scripture. There are things we do because we are saved that give evidence. And we confuse that. But the moment you contribute to your salvation, then you have earned it. And it's not by grace. The moment you can contribute something, it means God is somehow obligated, which he never is. So we need to really understand that. And an excellent illustration comes from Abraham. So chapter 4, having dealt with, you know, chapter 3, being justified by faith, talked about it. He says this. What then shall we say that Abraham, who is our forefather, forefather according to the flesh has found what shall we say about Abraham for if Abraham was justified by any work or by his works any work at all he has something to boast about but not before God and then he quotes in verse 3 Genesis 15 6 and he quotes himself from Galatians 3 6 but the most important thing is he quotes Genesis 15 6 and it says this for what does the scripture say Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the word credited uh, is an interesting word, because you could think that the word credited means earned. But the word credited simply means there's something there. In other words, if, if, if I have a credit in my bank account, 
It could be that I earned salary and put it there. Or it could simply be that something happened and they credited money. Maybe I earned some interest. My, my money earned interest. I had money in there, it earned interest. I didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. It was just credited. So the idea of crediting is basically neutral until it's explained. In a moment, Paul's going to explain it. But here's what he's saying. God claims in Genesis 15, 6. This is important because when God makes a statement, we probably should listen to God. When God says something, probably God is going to be right 100% of the time. And I've often found myself this way. It is never a good place when you disagree with God. And when you disagree with God, you might want to recalibrate your thinking. Because somewhere, you messed up. Now, you can disagree with everybody on our stage. You can disagree with me all day long. I don't really care. But God cares if you disagree with him. So this is what God says. Abraham believed it was credited as righteous. If you, go to, if you go to Genesis 15, 6, flip over there real quick. You don't have to. I'll flip over there. I should have already had it marked. But I don't always do stuff like that. Sometimes I do things on the spur of the moment. Here's what it says in Genesis 15, 6. Uh, it says this, and he's talking about Abraham. It says in verse 6, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Moses is writing the story of Abraham as God told him. God, re- in chapter 15, he redoes the covenant. So in chapter 15, he says, Do not fear, Abraham, I am a shield to you. You will be very great. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? I am childless, and in the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, his slave. He says, Since you have given no offspring to me, and one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, The man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them, he said, So shall your descendants be. And ultimately that is fulfilled in Christ. Go back to Genesis 12, where the covenant is. And it says he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. He was too old to have kids. His wife was too old to have kids. And God said you will have kids. He ended up having seven sons. There's a whole song about it. <laughs> Father Abraham has seven sons. Seven sons has Father Abraham. Learn it in preschool. If you ever worked in the preschool area or Wombaland, maybe. They... So that's important. God says this. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor what is due. So Paul says, if you earn it, in verse 4, it's not, it's not credit to you as a favor, it's not as a gift. It was due to you. But one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So here's what it says. The one who does not earn his salvation, but understands that being credited, in other words, or, or being justified, being declared right by God, it is an act of faith on our part. And the word act may even be too far. It is the element of faith on our part. That is righteousness. That's the way God has deemed it. Now, he's going to talk about not only Abraham, but verse 6, he says, just as David speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed are the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Not that they earned it. The Lord has chosen not to take it into account. Now, having laid that out, he's going to give some examples of Abraham having faith and being declared righteous apart from the word. So, verse 9. 
Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the circumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So the argument was always that for the Jews, and it carried over into Christianity, you had to be circumcised. You had to be circumcised in order to have favor with God. Circumcision is a sign, just like baptism. And I'm always a little leery of relating circumcision and baptism too much. There's a loose correlation. But circumcision was a sign that you had belonged to the tribe of Israel or the people of Israel. Now, a Gentile who uh, would come to become a believer in God had to be circumcised. They weren't considered a tribe of Israel, but they were considered a God-fearer, and they would be included in God's economy of salvation. When you get to the New Testament, circumcision was something that had to be done or you could not be in God's kingdom. Now, they didn't think in terms of being saved, the Jews did. They thought about in the kingdom of God, you had to be circumcised. When you get to the, the New Testament, that carries over. So the first book Paul wrote, Galatians, this is the issue. Some are saying you have to keep the law, you have to be circumcised, you have to obey the Jewish law. And Paul says, no, you don't. And when you get to Acts 15, that's the whole issue. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised? And they said no. And James, the brother of Jesus, who's head of the church of Jerusalem, says no. And then James says this. It's my opinion. We don't need to do anything to make it, I love this part, difficult for Gentiles to come to Christ. We probably ought to take that and put it on the door of every you know, church in America. Don't make it dif- difficult for people to come to Christ. All right? Don't make it difficult. Every so often people will say things and like, yeah, I think you're making it difficult for people to come to Jesus. So here's the thing. Was Abraham then, was he declared righteous as a result of circumstances? So verse 10 says this, how then was it credited to Abraham as righteous? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? He says not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. You know when chapter 17, Abraham gets circumcised. Abraham is circumcised after God declared him righteous. So if Abraham, the father of the Jews, did not receive right standing with God as a result of circumcision, how can anybody claim you have to be circumcised? The same thing with baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. I've said it a thousand times in my life. It just gets you wet. It's a picture of something. And so... Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, which is a seal of the righteousness. In other words, it is evidence of his standing of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. So he was uncircumcised as evidence that he was made right with God. I mean, he was circumcised as evidence that he was made right, that God declared him right while he was uncircumcised. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. So all who come to faith. He's the father of all of them. He's not just the father of the Jews. He's the father of all who come to faith. And in faith are declared right by God. In, Romans, in Genesis 12, the covenant, we always spoke on the covenant as being, I will give, make you a great nation, and you, know, and you will inherit the promised land. And then we all forget, or so many people forget, there's this part that says, and all the world will be blessed through you. That's the most important part of the covenant with Abraham, that the whole world will be blessed because that points to Jesus. That points to the cross. So, in the father of circumcision, to those who are not only of the circumcision, 
but also in the steps of the faith of our father, Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So he's saying this. Abraham, Father Abraham, is the father of those who have faith. Period. Circumcised or not. So to all those Romans who were Gentiles and had never been circumcised, he was their father in the faith. He is my father in the faith. He is all of our fathers in the faith. Because basically, you know, he's the first person whose faith is credited as righteousness. You go back to you know Abraham. I mean, you go back to uh, Adam and Noah. It's a different situation. You know, don't try to overthink that. Just accept it for what it is. So, okay. But what about the law? Because the Jews believe you had to keep the law. I mean, they came up with the law. I mean, they went past ten commandments. They had six hundred thirteen laws that you had to keep. That's a lot of laws. That's a bunch of laws. So, verse thirteen. The promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir to the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Abraham was promised all this many years before the law. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified, for the law brings about the wrath. But where there is no law, there is no violation. In other words, here's the thing Paul says. The law is important because the law points out we are sinners. It demonstrates that we are unable to be in right standing with God. And the law is important because it tells us how we ought to live. So if I look at the Ten Commandments, I ought to live that way as a believer in God. The fact that people don't live that way is evidence that they are not doing those things that please God. And you go to the New Testament, it's the same thing. And you see stuff all the time. Jesus boiled the law down there's just two commandments. Love God, love others. And we mess that up all the time. We can't even keep two. Two simple laws. Just love God. And the word love doesn't mean to have warm affection. It means to give yourself over to him completely. And love others. Same thing. Give yourself over to other people completely. And we don't do that. We can't keep two. So we're, the law is not there as a bad thing. It's a good thing. But what it does is it points out we are sinful people. It's how we understand that. And so, way before there was law, there was faith. So if you think the law saves you, you've nullified faith. And if you think any merit at all makes you right with God, you have destroyed the idea of faith. And there are churches all over the world and Christians, and I don't know, I'll use that term real loosely, who, who believe and who teach that somehow we do things to earn or obligate God's salvation. Think about that. So I hear some people say, baptism, you have to be baptized to be saved. Well, that's a problem. You know, thief on the cross wasn't baptized. I mean, everybody uses thief on the cross. He's your go-to example of everything. For stuff, I, he wasn't baptized. He didn't, do it, he didn't go to church. He's a, I'm glad he's there because he's the go-to guy. Don't know his name. When we get to heaven, I'm going to say, you were a great illustration for so much of the stuff that I got to preach on. But there are people all over life who don't get baptized. When I went to Laredo, I'd just gotten there. And my custodian, uh, sweet lady, they were Catholic. 
her, her son and his uh, girlfriend had, had a little baby. And uh, I forget why the, the priest didn't baptize me or whatever. And the baby died. It was a tragedy. And I think it happened right before I got there. And so she was just devastated because she believed her baby wasn't saved. And so I'm like, Amalia, you think God didn't love your child, your grandbaby, that little two or three-day-old child? You think God didn't let that child into heaven because some guy in a robe didn't take some water and sprinkle it on their head? What kind of God do you believe in? Took a long time. Her son was fine. He understood that. And, and so often in Christianity, including Baptist life, we create systems, rules, and regulations in order for people to find God. And our systems, rules, and regulations should be for people after they have found God. I'm not saying those aren't important. Because I come up with a few. But they're for me after I'm saved. Because if you add one single thing, you nullify faith. And you've taken it out of God's hands. So verse 16, for this reason, it's important clause there. It is by faith. In order that it may be in accordance with, what's the word? Grace. Faith and grace go together. It's all from God. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Not only are those of the law, but to those uh, who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. Faith. Grace and faith connected to the faith of Abraham. Verse 17 says, this is written, a father of many nations I have made you in the presence of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So now he's going to define and show you Abraham's faith. So the father of many nations, he said this, in the presence of him, that is God, whom he believed, even that God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. He gives life to the dead. Now we, we, we are thinking in our minds probably of raising the dead. But in many ways, he's probably talking about Abraham and Sarah. They were unable to have children. So in hope against hope, this is what Abraham did. He believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so, you're, so uh, shall your descendants be. That was the key, the father of many nations, not just the Jewish nations, many nations, Christian faith. In hope against hope. I mean, there was no, there was no basis for him to believe he could have children. Verse 19 says this, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. In other words, his faith, he thought about himself, he thought about his age, he thought about Sarah's womb, he thought about the fact they couldn't have children. That did not weaken his faith. In fact, we might say, that strengthened his faith. That is the evidence of his faith. One of the important things about Abraham is that we forget this sometimes, that God did all this stuff when Abraham was pretty well up in years. And we forget this. That's part of of, of the supernatural element in this. Why it's all about what God did. 
So, yet with respect, in verse 20, to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Someone, someone, uh, one of the scholars basically said, he let God be God, and God got the glory. Think about it. He did not waver in unbelief. God said, you'll have a child through Sarah. And he backed off. Now, we're, we're, I know we have the story of Hagar and all that in there. Got that. But he backed off. He trusted God. And as one old guy said, old guy, he said old guy because he wrote it years ago. He could have been young when he said it. But he said, he let God be God. I've never thought of it that way. And sometimes we just, God, let God be God. Get out of the way. Let God be God. But by letting God be God, God was glorified. So that. Verse 21 says, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. So, it's all about faith. Trusting God to do what only God can do. That's pretty important. To realize that I'm, I'm going to give my life to God and to trust him to do what only he is capable of doing. And that's the whole essence of salvation. The whole, the whole essence of our salvation is God doing something that only God can do. That's why we have to move past these concepts that somehow we help God along in salvation. And when I hear terminology and I hear things being said, and sometimes it's just a slip of the tongue. Somebody will say something, I, I know what he means. But some people teach that we contribute to that process. I hear a lot about free will. I hate that term. I hate the term free will. We'll talk about it more down the line. Because it's really not a biblical concept. The concept is freedom. That's the concept. God gives us freedom. Freedom is confined to a limited area. Uh, Free will basically implies that I can more or less do anything that I want to do without any constraints. So oftentimes, and people use that way, the idea of free will means I can even make moral judgments. I, in other words, I can, I can do things, and in doing them, I'm obligating God because I'm exercising free will, and the idea is that God is obligated then to what, if I make the, if I make the right decision, if I make the right decision, God is obligated to do something because he's already said he would. And so, it's, it kind of, so the idea of free will really bothers me. The idea of freedom I like because freedom is a different concept. Because even within the realms of freedom, we know there are confinements. In other words, I'm free, but I'm not free to do whatever I want or I'll get arrested. And we need to understand God gives us freedom to make choices. He does not give us the free will to determine what our life will be like. Because in the end, we don't determine our life. And free will to, to kind of describes that. Sometimes people, I've had people come up to me and say, man, you did a really great job talking about free will. I'm like, I didn't talk about free will. I very rarely ever talk about free will. I occasionally talk about you have freedom. And that's exactly what this is telling us. Abraham, within the confines of freedom that God gave him, had faith in God. And that's, and that's the beauty of all this. He didn't exercise free will in that he weighed his, all his options and like, oh, I can go this way and go that way. You know what, God, today I'm going with you. You look like the best option I got. We act like God is a choice on a restaurant menu. And I can choose God. And I choose. Listen, 
God gives us the freedom to accept his, his offer of salvation, or we can reject that offer. Most of the time, we reject God, period. But there are consequences to that rejection. There is a limitation. And part of that limitation is we don't get to decide later on we're going to come to God. When you reject God, you just reject him, and God doesn't owe you anything. And what makes belief so important is because when we believe in God and we have faith through Christ, we're taking our life and saying, God, I'm giving it to you so you can do what you do. And I'm not going to live my life rejecting you. But in my freedom that you have given me, I'm going to trust you. And so you come to this understanding here so that you come to these last few verses are so powerful. Now it's not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but it was for our sake. To whom it will be credited for those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. It's not for his sake. He didn't write this for Abraham's sake. Abraham was dead. Who did he write it for? For us. Who believe in, I'm not here, by the way, if that's for me. Who believed in Jesus. Who, got me God, who, raised, who believed in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. So verse 25. If you, some of you have heard of the Roman road of salvation, right? There's certain verses. Romans 1.17, we've done Romans 3.23. Oftentimes this verse is overlooked. Some have said it's maybe the, 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 one of the best summations of the gospel written. He, that is Jesus, was delivered over on account of or because of our transgressions or sins and was raised back to life because of or on account of our justification or being declared righteous. Verse 424 says this. Jesus Christ was given over by God because of, on account of our sin. Because we're sinners, he sent Jesus to die. And on account of our being made right by God, God raised him back to life. He died for our sin and was raised to life for our justification. That is the gospel. Jesus died on account of our sin. And God raised him back to life on account of our being declared righteous by God. And that's it. And that's, that's what it's all about. And nowhere in that equation... Do I fit in, except for the sin part? <laughs> I sin. But this is, this is God doing what God does to bring about our salvation. And if you will, you will understand that and accept that and live by faith, you will remove a great burden from your life, and that is the burden of always trying to be making, well, trying to make yourself right or righteous because you can't do it. Now, you've got to live a life. I get that. I understand all that. But you're living a life that God calls you to live, and you live that life by faith. So even the works I do are by my faith in God. And I am freed and I am delivered from trying to please God by what I do. And instead, I live in faith with God and serve him that way. It's an important distinction. Questions that you may have? Yes, sir. I should have looked to you first. Hope I can say 
I don't know. What are you thinking? I'll tell you whether you should say it or not. Because sometimes people think things they really shouldn't say. Faith is a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God. Supposed to grow in faith. Is that saying that we should grow the faith God has given us, or is that to say we are to grow spiritually within the faith God has given us? Uh, are we to grow, grow the faith God gives us or grow spiritually with the faith God gives us? More likely the latter. Here's what I tell people. God gives us, at the moment of our salvation through the Holy Spirit, everything we need. To grow in our faith is to grow as a follower of Jesus in the utilization of what God has already provided. So it is not that there's more faith or less faith and you've got to quantify it, quantify it somehow. You've got to get more of it. It is you have what God has given you. You have all that. Everything is given to you. At the moment of transformation by the Holy Spirit, it is a matter of surrendering your life so that you can utilize all of what God has provided in your life. So to grow in my faith, I'll give you a good example. God has given me scripture. He's given me all there is. To grow in my faith and understanding is to utilize what God has provided. So I study it, I read it, I pray over it, I practice it. So I'm not, um, he's not going to provide more. He's given me all of it. It's whether or not I grow in my usage of it. What else? Yes, sir. Yes. Isaac was now understand that faith definitely was involved, but what about courage? He had to have something to actually go and do that. Well, I mean, I would, I would say yes, he had courage. You know, I, I, I don't. Yeah, I would say there's a lot of courage. Paul talks about being bold all the time in our faith, and to have faith is a bold or courageous thing. Abraham certainly was a courageous thing he did. I would say courage in, in the way you're kind of you're using it. Is, um, is one of the results of faith or the illustrations of faith. I would say a person of faith would be a person of courage. Uh, courage has different connotations. It's not the word used, so you, you don't tend to use that word because it's not the, the Hebrew or the Greek word used. But certainly we would understand a courageous person in that instance of having an element of faith. It's a byproduct. Sir? Byproduct. Yes, it's a byproduct. And an illustration of it, yes. Do what? He was practicing his faith. Practicing his faith. Show up. Yes. When the centurion accepted Jesus as his savior, which his centurion? Whole, house, his whole household was also. Okay. Yes. Happened several times. So you're doing Romans 16. I mean Acts 16. When the okay. Well, what happens? It says is Paul went and preached the gospel, and they all believed. So it's, it, it's a summation. The centurion believed, and the guard believed, I should say, and the Roman jailer believed, and his whole household. Well, his whole household, it says, believed, because Paul went and shared the gospel. So that's why they believed. As you know, I'm not one to be picky. No, I know. <laughs> We've discussed that often in staff meeting, how unpicky you are about things. <laughs> You were. You were very picky about who you called, and you made a very good choice eventually. <laughs> Took you a couple of shots to get it right, but you finally came around when everybody else was gone. Let, let me get back to Okay. You're starting off by saying we don't obtain our salvation by something we do. Yeah, we do not. That's correct. 
But we do something. Yes. We believe. We believe. There is something we do. Okay. You're, you're being very picky, and you're probably using the English language in some unusual ways there, I would say. When I say do, we don't do anything. Uh, we're talking about something that we generate or create. But when I say we believe that you are doing something, when you believe, it is more of a passive act. In other words, it's, it's that way. So when I say you're not doing anything, the verb to be is a very versatile verb. Uh, phrase and you get all sorts like am, are, was, is, all that stuff. In English and in Greek, it's an extremely versatile thing. And in Hebrew, by the way, as we'll see in a couple of weeks. So, in the versatility of that particular verb form, uh, to doing something is also the same way. Um, we're talking about doing in the sense of acting, as opposed to doing in the sense of receiving. So, when I believe what I'm doing is receiving what God has provided. And acting on, I mean, acting on doing it, but I'm not, I'm not taking an active role. I'm accepting something that's provided, a gift. Like, okay? Oh, you want to be pickier than that? What do you want? Huh? I don't believe believing and accepting are Okay, let me explain it to you this way. You don't think believing and accepting are passive. There are some times that it's written that way in the Greek language. I can't remember. There are several places where it talks about that that way. It is passive in the sense that you don't generate the belief. It's not passive in the sense that I was believed or I was forced to believe. I was was given a book. I I didn't go get the book. I was given a book. Uh, We talk about future passives will be. We will be doing something. That's the future passive. It's passive in the sense that I didn't generate it. So it's a gift. So it's just like, I'm going to use the example of a gift. If I give you a gift, you have to do something. You have to open it up. That is an action on your part. But it's the action that is a result of something you did not do. If you went and bought the gift, you know, if I give you, I wouldn't give you much, but if I gave you a Coke and I put it in a can, you'd have to open a can and drink it. You did something, but it's the result of my activity. If you went and bought the Coke, which I'm highly doubtful you would spend that much, but if you went and bought the Coke, you generated that activity. So it's, that, it's the difference between the initial action is passive on your part. Is that good enough? For everybody but you? Okay, we'll drop it. All right. It's a good question, almost. Yes. I'm kind of returning to kind of what I referred to last week. About, I was saved somewhere eight, nine, okay. years, somewhere. I don't know exactly my age, but uh, it was in a small church, and the invitation was given, uh-huh. and I wasn't urged by my mother or anybody. I heard the message, and I went forward and uh-huh. knelt at an altar, and yeah. and uh, I believed I was saved. Yeah. And, but the message might have been, uh, you know, for a child, the message might have been, you're going to hell. Yeah. And there's a strong message about going to hell. Yeah. And then. It's an effective tool. I could have been influenced by that. Yeah. I don't want to go to hell. That yeah. sounds like bad. Yeah. And, I, and if I die, yeah. and that might, might be a message, you might die tomorrow, he might say. That's right. And I, well, I'm fear, I, 
I want to be with my mother. My mother's a Christian, so I had I was believing, but yes. I might have been motivated by that. You sure? Was that so? So God had to understand me. Yeah. I'm expressing some. Faith. Sure, it's like the thief on the cross. I'm expressing some faith. The Holy Spirit. Okay. And I asked last week, right. what what kind of understanding does it take to be effectual? Okay. Yes. Take to be what? To be to take effectual. Effectual. Okay. That's it's the same faith. It's just faith. It's not. It's saving faith. When you believe, Scripture. This is what Scripture Jesus said. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, and convicts you of righteousness, and convicts you of judgment. He does the work. Uh, we say he convicts you of sin and convinces you you need to be saved. So if the Holy Spirit moves you by whatever reason, whatever preacher said, that's not the issue. If the Holy Spirit moves you to salvation, and actually your salvation was a compilation of a lot of messages and a lot of teaching and a lot of work. It was a process that culminated in that one event. As long as the Holy Spirit was the one that moved you, it's the sal- faith is faith. There's no qualification for it. It is Giving your life, I say this all the time, you give your life to Jesus. You trust him with your life, period, in the story. So it took effect the moment you trusted him. And it becomes, you know, in my life, then I became a teenager, later yeah. years, went into the service. And yes. Had uh, beer in the barracks and, you know, had a kind of a wild life. You sure you want to share that? <laughs> Baptist, be careful. Yeah. You, you do too much, you'll be a Methodist. Yeah. You know it. Keep you right out of here. Yeah? Okay, you can be a prodigal son and be Baptist. We, al- we love a few prodigals. I'm asking about, you know, my security. Yeah, you're safe. You know, we, we say once saved, always saved, which is kind of a passive way of saying the perseverance of the saints. You were saved. If God saved you, you can't undo. We're not Church of Christ. If God saved you, you ain't undoing it. I can't undo what God did. John chapter 10, read, uh, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them will follow me. I give eternal life to them. They shall by no means perish, and they cannot be snatched out of my hand. Is it a fair statement, then, for what you've shared, that acceptance or uh, this, you make a mental decision but not a physical action when you accept Christ? Uh, you make a total commitment of your life, period. Yeah, but it's, it doesn't have to be an action. It's a, it's a mental decision. You know, if, if I agree with you, I can get pinned into heresy. <laughs> commitment is you're, you're, you're doing to the work. You're doing to it things that, the, that I'm uncomfortable doing it. I don't make that distinction. You commit your life to Christ, period. It's a, it is the, you, you're active in receiving something that's been given to you, but you're not active in saving. You're not active in saving yourself. You, you can't, you're passive in being saved. Because Christ always says you are being saved. You are being, Paul writes, you are being saved. For by grace, or, you know, you're saved by faith. If we confess, confess with the mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It's a passive act to us. But you have the responsibility of giving your life to Christ. I'm going to leave it at that. Anything else? A couple things real quick. If you're on the finance committee, see Troy. Oh, we have one more question? Where? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 2.12 says that we can work in our soul. 
Okay, Paul talked about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. But in, that, in that passage, you look at it contextually, when Paul says work out your salvation, you're already saved. So you're on the back end of the salvation. So you're working out in the sense that you're living it out. The idea of working is the process of bringing it to its fruition, to bringing out the results of it. So you're working it out as you live your life, but you already say. You're working out something you already have, not something you are yet to obtain. People do use that passage to say you have to earn your salvation because they don't understand the context of it and they don't understand the language and they don't understand the totality of what's being said. You already say you're living out the fruition of that. To help? Huh? It's written to Christians. Correct. One thing, I'll take one minute real quick before we go. Uh, we were discussing something in staff meeting, and we are kicking around this idea, so I'm going to let you, you know, just share with you. Sometimes I share things, sometimes I don't. The last two Sundays of the year, the Sunday before Christmas and the Sunday before New Year's, we don't have Sunday school. We just, we just have worship. So we're thinking about the possibility. We haven't decided to do it. We're just thinking about the possibility and throwing it out there, get a little feedback. You don't give me the feedback right now. I don't want to hear it right now. Later in time, just think about it. We're thinking about possibly taking the, our traditional service at Miranda and those two Sundays, coming over here at 8.30 and having worship in this facility with those who worship there. It'd be a traditional service. It'd still be Mike be leading it. We wouldn't let Brian come near the area. He, was, he would, we'd, Brian would go to Starbucks during that time. We'd be close to you. Uh, and, uh, but, but maybe having the opportunity for the, for the folks who normally worship mostly at Miranda and traditional to have the opportunity to come over here. There's no Sunday school those two days, so we don't have to worry about that. So just, we're just kicking it around. I'm thinking about a little bit, mulling it. So think it over. Don't give me any feedback right this second. I don't want to, we're not voting on it, none of that stuff. Just think about it in your mind for a little bit, and we'll see y'all later. <laughs>